0: recovery elevator episode 124
1: you know the hangovers for me are you know the body's way of saying you know you've put a bunch of poison (laughs) willingly in your body and you know this is this is the result of it
0: welcome to recovery elevator podcast my name is paul thank you so much for joining us According to the Recovery Elevator Sobriety Tracker, it's been 24,555.37 hours since my last drink. On today's podcast, we've got Garrett. He's 43 years old. He's 16 days sober at the time of the recording, but he previously had three years of sobriety. It's a great interview, and I highly encourage you listen to all of it. But before we go any further, let's hear from Cafe RE. Before I got sober, I felt alone. It felt like I was the only one in the whole world who found it extremely difficult to stop drinking once I had started. With Cafe RE, I now know I'm not alone. In fact, there are so many people all around this world just like me. In Cafe RE, for $12 a month, I get access to a private, unsearchable Facebook group where I can connect with other like-minded individuals, meet with them face-to-face in several weekly live webinars and meetings, I can get paired with an accountability partner who has a similar sobriety date as mine, I can attend in-person meetups and attend exclusive sober trips to places like Costa Rica. If there's one thing I've learned in sobriety, it's that I can't do this alone. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code elevator for your first month free. Again, use the promo code elevator when signing up for your first month free. Okay, let's get started. You know what? If you're listening right now, I like you guys. I like you guys a lot. After episode 118, The Black Dog, which was basically me telling you guys about the depression that I've been going through lately, I got so many emails of support, so many texts, so many Facebook messages, and direct emails. In fact, I apologize if I haven't gotten back to you, it's because there's been so many of them. It was a shitty podcast to record. I didn't want to make it. I said to myself, my depression, it's my thing, and it has nothing to do with alcohol, therefore I don't want to talk about it, I don't want to share it with the audience. But lesson numero uno that I learned with alcohol is that keeping it a secret, it doesn't help anybody, and it doesn't really give me much chance of success. So I applied that reasoning to my depression that I've been going through, and guess what? Some really cool things happened. I got a message from a woman who sent me a link to the Joe Rogan podcast number 968 with a Kelly Brogan. looked at it, and I was like, man, this is a three-hour podcast. I don't want to listen to this. But just like with drinking, it was when I did things that I didn't really want to do is when I started to get better. So guess what? I put my earphones on, and I listened to all three hours and like 30 minutes of this podcast episode. The interviewee, Kelly Brogan, has recently put down her psychiatric prescription notebook because, well, what she found is that stuff really doesn't work. She's referring to the over-medication of people with mental illnesses. In her interview, she makes a lot of good points, and she keeps referencing a book by Robert Whitaker called The Anatomy of an Epidemic. So, in the pursuit of knowledge, I purchased this audiobook, And on the way to my dad's 70th birthday in Washington, happy birthday, dad, I listened to all 13 hours of this audio book. It was hard to listen to. reason why, it was like a bad joke. And I've been on the bad end of that bad joke for a long time. Now, you can find books and you can find studies on each side of the road. But this book by Robert Whittaker did a great job of not putting his own opinions into the book. The book sets out to answer a pretty good question, and the question is, if we've had so many medical breakthroughs in the last 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years regarding mental illness, then why are there more people on disability today for mental illnesses than there have ever been? The book talks about magic bullets. We're all looking for magic bullets. I look for a lot of magic bullets in pill format when I try to get sober. And in some aspects of the medical field, there have been magical bullets. Example, the cure of tuberculosis and many other medical breakthroughs. But as far as a magical bullet when it comes to mental illness, depression, bipolar, anxiety disorders, schizophrenia, these magic bullets have actually created an iatrogenic effect. And I learned in this book that an iatrogenic effect is when the pills do more harm than good. The long-term outcome of these pills, of this treatment, is far damaging to the people taking them. He talks about a study. In fact, he references many studies, and these are studies done that are non-pharmaceutical industry funded studies, that people who take an active placebo versus an antidepressant basically do the exact same thing, they have the same outcome. And to explain to you guys what an active placebo is, an active placebo is something that gives you a negative side effect. For example, you take a pill, but it makes your mouth dry. People who took the antidepressant and an active placebo had the exact same outcomes. But in the long run, it's shown that these drugs can do a lot more harm than good. It shows that in poorer countries or they don't have the resources to the medicines that we have today in our country, United States of America, or in other first world countries, that the outcomes for mental illness patients are far better. I learned that despite billions dumped into scientific research to mental illness, there has been no chemical imbalance has ever been found. In fact, I remember just a few short months ago my psychiatrist saying, well Paul, you've got a chemical imbalance in your brain And these antidepressants are going to correct that chemical imbalance. There's been no biological reason or explanation due to scientific research of why we have these mental illnesses. My conclusion is that there's nothing wrong with me. I don't have a chemical imbalance. When I was dumping copious amounts of alcohol, that chemical in my body, sure, there was a lot wrong with me. But at this moment, with nearly three years of sobriety, there's nothing wrong with me. And so with the help of a doctor and my medical recovery team, I've been tapering off my antidepressant and this is day eight without them. And guess what? I'm okay. Things are just fine. In fact, I don't notice a difference, but I did notice when I was on this medication for so long, it zapped my creativity, my hobbies, my interest in the fun things that I used to do dissipated. And it's hard to leave a happy, healthy, joyful life when you don't like to do those fun things. Now, if you're listening to this podcast, you're thinking about getting off antidepressants, I highly recommend you talk to your psychiatrist or therapist first. You can believe me, some dude who's recording this podcast in his sweatpants, I'm just kidding. I'm wearing running shorts, they're blue. I went on a run earlier, but you get the point. But there's this whole world out there that's kinda messed up. In fact, it's extremely messed up with these pharmaceutical companies. Again, the book is by Robert Whitaker. It's called An Anatomy of an Epidemic. I highly recommend you read it or listen to it in an audiobook format. But another more valuable point I want to make with this topic, the point is to not get you off your antidepressant medications. It's not. But that is my goal in sobriety, and I'm over a week in. I want to make another push forward in my recovery, and I want to do it without the aid of an antidepressant that, in fact, is probably doing me more harm than good in the long run. But the point that I want to make is you got to talk about these issues. Had I not spoken about my depression on this podcast, the dialogue would have been curbed at just that. It never would have happened. I got a lot of great advice from people, and without this advice, I'd be still stuck at square one. And that's exactly the same with drinking where I would have been without this podcast a long time ago. Because my thinking, sorry, Paul Churchill, but it sucks. My stinking thinking at times does not set me up for success. It's my ideas that often get me to a lot of trouble. So to make this applicable to alcohol, I highly encourage you to talk about this with somebody else. It's this community that has been pivotal in my recovery. And I absolutely love hearing from you guys. Okay, now let's hear from Garrett. Garrett, how are you?
1: I'm doing great. Thanks. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah. Thanks for joining us, Garrett. Let's get right into this. How long have you been sober?
1: So this this latest time at the moment, it's 16 days.
0: Nice job. Congratulations. How's that feel?
1: It feels fantastic right now. It feels really, really good. I'm in a I'm in a good place. I've I've had stretches. Before of sobriety, you know, I, I had uh, 14 months and I've had three years and then uh, just a ton of, you know, a handful of days, like more than more than I can count.
0: Yeah. And I, I want to get to all that. But before we get any further, give listeners a little background about yourself, maybe where you're from, what you do for a living. Do you have a family and what do you like to do for fun, Garrett?
1: Yeah. So I live in uh, Southern California in Santa Clarita and I've uh, been there pretty much my whole life. I work in uh, outside sales which is a non, non-structured job. It's perfect for a, an alcoholic with hangovers, unfortunately. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> for fun, I like to, like to go to baseball games, I like the Dodgers. Uh, I, like to, I like to go skiing. I'm 43. I've, I've got a, a wife, and I've got two kids, high school age and junior high school age.
0: Sounds like you got a lot going on in your life, and it would be tough to manage that with alcohol. Am I right?
1: It's extremely tough to manage that with alcohol. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. yeah. Let's, let's talk about the previous times that you've had without alcohol. So you you said you went three years and then there's another 14 month stint. You know, what was the impetus behind that for you to quitting alcohol for three years and then 14 months?
1: You know, it was just the buildup uh, of the hangovers. You know, the hangovers for me are, you know, the body's way of saying, you know, you, you've put a bunch of poison <laughs> willingly in your body and you know, this is, this is the result of it. So, I mean, for me, I I would be, you know, consistently laid out for a full day, you know, just drank way too much, way, way more than I had planned. And thinking, you know, in the moment, as I was drinking, that there's no possible way that this could happen again.
0: (laughs) Um, Every time,
1: every single time, which is just, you know, completely fascinating. And then, you know, with me, I mean, I, I just, you know, the feeling in my stomach, the whole body. I mean, I, you know, you can't move. I can't shave. I I can't walk. I mean, just being just, just laying in bed literally all day, you know, until about four, five o'clock in the evening. And I've had more of those instances than I, than I can count. So it was just one of those times that I stopped for the, for the three years. And I did that basically on my own. I didn't go to any programs at that point. And, uh, you know, I, it was great. I, I lost, you know, 30 pounds. Uh, life was good. And I, you know, I just started again for just the, the stupidest reason. I mean, I just, you know, there was no big like light bulb. I just said, Oh, you know, I think that I'm cured. I, I've done this for three years. And I think that this is, you know, we're past this, you know, I was continually reinforced. I don't have, you know, too many uh, heavy alcoholics in my family. And uh, it's hard for, for them to kind of see I was I was really good at hiding things and hiding behaviors from them. Although maybe they, they knew more than they let on, but uh, just kind of thinking, you know, I'm done. Uh, this is good. I, I've, I've cured it. And uh, I just, you know, went and bought a bottle of wine and, you know, it was right back. And I, I don't just like sip. I, I, I chug. I mean, I just, I just gulp. You know, my whole, my whole thing about uh, drinking is that it would never be like, you know, in my head, it would be like romanticized, like, oh, you're going wine tasting, you're sipping wine, this is great. <laughs> uh, this yeah. is, You know, that was it, that was in my head. But the result was, I would just chug that as fast as I could with the intention of getting a buzz. And as soon as I would get the buzz, I would be like, oh, well, there's no way I can stop now. I just have to continue and continue with this because I don't want to stop feeling like this. You know, so I would get, you know, extremely short window, maybe like 10 minutes of feeling good, feeling, you know, normal without anxiety. And then the cost of that was, you know, the entire next day of being just completely laid out and, you know, not remembering what I did the night before and just terrible.
0: You know, what was it like when you first drank after three years? Do you remember the first night? Did you, you said you bought a bottle of wine. Did you pick up right where you left off?
1: Not really. no. No. You know, it was it was a gradual thing. It was it was definitely something that it was a, you know, kind of a slow build up. I mean my, my elevator is kinda of chaotic. It's kinda of like the elevator at the at the Tower of Terror, uh in Disney World. You know, just uh, up <laughs> up and analogy. down. But yeah, at that at that point it was, you know, a little bit gradual. I mean that first night I, I think, you know, probably just I got down the bottle and I stopped there, so <laughs> You know, in my head, I was like, "Okay, that's okay. I didn't go drunk driving for more." Yeah, it's a victory but right there. Very quickly, in my book. yeah. I, very, very quickly, I did. You know, I I was always, you know, it would have been a lot easier, I think, for me if I could have just gone to Costco and just loaded my house up with alcohol. But I I I, I could never do that because I was so ashamed. I didn't want you know my family to see all this uh, crap in my house. I didn't want my wife to see it. I would go out and, and sneak it. You know, I'd wait for people to go to sleep, and then I would go buy a six-pack, thinking that I would just have one or two. A six-pack would be gone. At that point, I'm I'm drunk driving to the liquor store. Sure. To get you know, yep. And for a while, I lived around the corner from this gas station, and that was, and I was like, this is great. I don't have to drive. I can just walk. I could just walk around the corner, and there was many trips back and forth to that gas station up until 2 o'clock when you can't sell alcohol anymore in California.
0: What's the record of trips to that gas station one night, Garrett?
1: I don't know. I I would start with, like, a bottle of wine, and then I would go and just get, like, you know, these tall boys, just go back and forth after the wine was gone. And I would just start filling up the wine glasses with, like, you know, I don't know, uh, just whatever, just 24-ounce cans of, you name it, anything I could get. And pretty much, you know, maybe, I don't know how many I would buy, but uh, enough that until I would basically just, Wink out. I mean, the room would just start completely shaking, and I would just close my eyes, and that would be it.
0: Yeah, so. and Garrett, you mentioned a word earlier that I want to explore a little bit more, and that was a word fascinating, where you would tell yourself, you know, I'm only having a couple. I'm only having you know, one or two drinks, and then, you know, because, you like, you don't want to be hungover like you were the previous times but then just game on and you know, in the rooms you hear the word baffling a lot, but it's, it is fascinating. And I felt that before too, where you plan on having one or two. Okay, let's get real. You plan on having like four or five or six, but you don't plan on blacking out and you know, losing the entire next day, due to a hangover. And seriously, you tell yourself like what the F just happened. Can you tell me more about that fascinating part for you?
1: Yeah, it was complete and total amnesia every single time completely forgetting how bad the hangovers were for forgetting the despair that I would feel just lying in bed the next day you know in and out of of sleep trying you know figuring out if I needed to go throw up or not or you know whatever and it got so bad so many times and so consistent you know the the fascinating part is you know I've I've lived in uh I lived at the beach, you know, where I live now, it's, it's near some hikes. I live in Southern California. The weather's always great. You can do anything I want, basically. You know, I mean, I, I lived at the, that where I was close to that gas station. That was like right on the beach in Ventura. Mm -hmm. I mean, I could have been out walking, you know, moonlight, you know, on the beach, you know, at at night, just strolling back and forth. I could have been jogging. I could have been doing anything that I wanted to. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and it's so. And, and how many people would kill for this life? You know, kill to be able to live where I live, and you know, have the just be able. I could do anything I want, anything at, at basically any time. You know, I could drive down. I could get a you know get on an airplane to Australia right now if I wanted to. I could you know go hike. But the fascinating part was just I, I was the amount of time, the amount of years that I would lose in not doing those things. You know, it's a beautiful day outside. I could kind of feel the breeze sometimes. And I, I could be out body surfing, but I'm freaking hung over. And I just throwing my, my life away. But then I would just continue to do it because I would, I would forget every single time and just continue to think that it wasn't going to happen this time. Or that, uh, you know, because I'm not a bum in the street, that I'm not a, a true alcoholic and then being really pissed off at people that I saw drinking normally and wondering why I I couldn't just do that.
0: You know, Garrett, another gentleman named Paul in episode 12 of this podcast, he mentioned the ism, the alcoholism, the, the incredible dangerous part about this is the incredibly short memory Of the alcohol and you're exactly right we we forget you know yesterday just how bad we were feeling and we forget you know we couldn't stop drinking the previous 100 times we drank and I I imagine when you were you know felt that breeze looked outside you probably made promises yourself like tomorrow I'm gonna get outside and I'm gonna go for a lap or two on the beach right
1: yeah no I would think like I I would almost be like happy you know I'd be like oh you know this really sucks right now but I'm, I'm really happy because I know in my heart this is the last time and it's 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 okay you know i know that this sucks right now but i'm so glad that this is the last time and i i probably had that that repeat you know a thousand times Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah i mean and that is just completely insane it's exhausting uh, isn't it absolutely exhausting yeah like mentally physically you name it absolutely
0: now, was there a rock bottom moment sixteen days ago, or the time before you had three years and then fourteen months? You know what? What's causing you? How come you quit drinking?
1: It wasn't a, a single rock bottom. I, I think that maybe the the key thing that I could point to was so baseball season started. I got season tickets for the Dodgers, and uh, you know I know I've listened to it before, Paul. I know I know you're not a baseball fan, but uh, you can probably <laughs> tell that sometimes sometimes baseball is a little bit slow, right? And you know, if there was ever a, a sport that was made for sitting and drinking beer, it would be at a baseball game. It was
0: baseball, yeah.
1: So that kind of just spurred me to, I think I just had a moment of clarity where I would, uh, it was one thing, like the guy, the, the beer vendor at the at the Dodger Stadium would keep you like, oh, back again, huh? And then I would go to different beer vendors uh, because I was embarrassing. And then just, the dr- <laughs> you know, the, the continually uh, drunk driving home, it was the drunk driving home and then going to a bar and then driving home uh, drunk again and and kind of uh, tapping my uh, garage, putting a dent in my garage. That that was maybe just the the moment of clarity where I was like, this this, this shit has got to stop. Yeah, it's yeah. funny how
0: a tap on the garage door <laughs> can leave a massive dent. Who would have thought?
1: Which I which I didn't remember. Which I didn't remember. You know. And, and at first I'm like, well, how'd that happen? I'm like, oh shit, you know. <laughs> But, well, it had I, – because I didn't remember, you know, that much about the night. So I just had to kind of reconstruct it. And, so yep, if you have season tickets to the
0: Dodgers, would, would you see like 312 regular season games at home each year, or something like that?
1: <laughs> There's 81 games, uh, 81 home games in baseball, which isn't that crazy? Yeah, uh, that's a lot of games. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't go to all 81. Probably go to about 30 this year.
0: Have you been to some sober baseball games yet?
1: Uh, well, recently. Last night I was completely sober. Yeah. So – it, no, it's still, it's, it's still fun. It's, it's always, it's always fun too. Yeah. I mean, it was a few weeks ago, I, there was a home run that I saw in sports center and I was at the freaking game. I was like, I, I don't remember that, you know, <laughs> so, it's, it's, it's not, it's nice to, uh, it's nice to be there and remember everything for sure.
0: Did the beer guy see Absolutely. you and like, Hey Garrett, I got your usual here.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I know I turned, I just got of glance at it, I just turned my head away, you know? kept walking. That's... turn my head away. <laughs> that's awesome. I recognized him. Yeah, I kind of did the head
0: nod. Now, here we are, Garrett, with 16 days of sobriety. Before I hit the record button, you mentioned you feel like you're ping-ponging back and forth between, am I an alcoholic? Well, maybe, maybe I'm not. Do I have a drinking problem? I probably don't. Tell us more about that.
1: It would, it was a stretch of, uh, you know, a few days where I would just, you know, continually... You know, I would have a few days and then I would be like, I'm not because I have a few days and that proves it. And and by the way, because I've had a few days, because I've had 14 months, if it, if it happens again, you know, if I'm wrong right about this, I could certainly go back and have a few more days or have another three years. So it's like I'm not and then wake up hungover and, you know, miss miss Easter, miss driving down to Easter. Well, at that point, I knew I definitely was. But then, you know, the the hangover goes away and oh, I'm not again. <laughs> that, that that type
0: of thing. How many times have you told yourself? Because um, when I had two and a half years of sobriety, I would almost you know be okay with a relapse because I would say, well, you know, I've done two and a half years before, I'll I'll do it again. And then it just got to the point where you know, stringing two and a half days was hard. I mean, have you told yourself like, look, Garrett, we've done three years, fourteen months before, like we got this, no problem.
1: I would tell myself that all the time, and it would not ever work. Would not ever work. Uh, that that thought is the you know the worst the worst thought that I could have had because that'll that'll get me straight to uh, drinking with that thought, and it doesn't work.
0: No, it doesn't, because what I found that you know two and a half years, three years is a long time, and you know I'd get like a week or ten days together, and I'd, I'd like ah, ten days is nothing. I'd throw it away with a relapse you know, and then, and then I got to the point where I was taking it one hour at a time, like the one day, one hour, one minute at a time. And that's kind of when the rubber hit the road to me. Where I was like, wow, this shit got real fast is I'm not getting sober. This is a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. You know, is it, is it harder this time around? Do you remember?
1: Well, I mean, this time I, you know, I've got 16 days I'm, I'm ready. I I'm trying to, to arm myself for, you know, with some resources to, to when it starts to get harder than it is. I'm, I'm in a little bit of a of a pink cloud at the moment, but you know, if history history doth repeat itself. So I know what's coming, and you know, I've got a plan to to address what I, what I know is going to start coming down the road.
0: Yeah, and let's talk about that plan. What do you plan to do differently this time, and and what is your overall plan?
1: It, it, the key thing is accountability. You know, when I had the 14 months, and I I it was again pretty much on my own. I, I would listen to you know, some podcasts, I would look at some things on the internet, but I never had any accountability with another person. And had I had people at at my job known that I was an alcoholic, I probably wouldn't on when we were doing that harbor cruise with all my work friends, and in the Newport Beach Harbor, and I just thought was feeling so pissed off that I I could just go ahead and have a beer like everybody else is having. And that was, that was how I broke, you know, last summer with that 14 months mm. and everyone, everyone didn't think anything of it because nobody knew. I, I think that if people there would have known, you know, I know that you know, it's supposed to be anonymous, but I think that if I was not anonymous, that I I would not have picked up that beer, you know, I would have just stuck to diet Coke and I wouldn't have you know gone through the, the hell that, you know, that, that one beer spurred on. So, with accountability, that that's the main plan. I, we, we cannot do this alone because I've done tons and tons of research, and I, I believe 100% that there's no way to do this alone.
0: It sounds like you've done a lot of research, but you've also lived it with firsthand experience, you know, the three months or the three years, the 14 months. And it sounds like you were going on willpower alone. Is it safe to say that with those chunks of time?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, willpower alone because I, I wasn't. Uh, I didn't have anybody that I
0: could talk to about it yeah correct me if I'm wrong but the mindset that I have found in this stint in sobriety which is over two and a half years is that quitting drinking is an opportunity and not a sacrifice and when I had two and a half years and then I had another ten months under my belt I was looking at it you know I was doing it with willpower alone and I got to the point where I was looking at drinking as a sacrifice and it sounds like when you were in that Newport Harbor cruise for the company party that you were pissed off and you were mad that you couldn't drink and you were looking at it like a, like a sacrifice does this sound anywhere in the ballpark
1: yeah absolutely and you know the thought was again you know that combined with the thought of you know I, I I'm tired of you know this these thoughts in my head that I you know it was it's just this crazy thoughts and I it's gonna be different this time and you know that was that was a huge huge trigger so yeah I, I think you're asking is you know not is not drinking a sacrifice and and that and that 's exactly what was on my mind like i'm i'm tired of doing this i'm tired of sacrificing you know, and my head was completely messed up, and so that 's what did it
0: it's kind of a good gauge for me when i when I look at a drink and and if I start to view it as a sacrifice you know like as a barometer that goes back and forth. It's kind of a good gauge of, of where I'm at in my sobriety and I kind of need to do more work or, or I'm sitting pretty good. I rarely or I never want to say the words, I got this because I never do. But, yeah, it's, it's, I look at it as an opportunity only today on May 24th when we're recording this. is Quitting drinking is an opportunity right now for me. It's it's not a sacrifice. And, and Garrett, I'm not here to convince you of... Of one journey or another pathway or another but before we recorded you mentioned you have some you had a bad experience with AA and again I, I have I've got a love-hate relationship with that program myself but tell me tell me more about that
1: yeah so I was raised you know Christian evangelical you know I right now about ten years ago I, I broke with all of that I'm, I'm an atheist now and so what what happened with me was I saw a lot of um, the uh, the judgment the dogma you know, there's some of the gossip and uh, there was some trust that was broken. I confided in somebody and he didn't call me out by name in front of the, other, the whole group, but he called me out and people would, <laughs> you know, anybody would know who, who this guy was referring to, even though he didn't mention my name. And so in that combined with the God thing, which I'm, I'm still wrestling with where my head is at right now with, with AA is I, I need to, you know, focus on the, the positive. If somebody is, saying that just reinforcing in my head that, you know, this is, it's not perfect and these people aren't perfect cause I'm certainly not perfect, you know? So I'm, I'm ready to explore going back there again. I, I might you know try a, a different, a different meeting time. So, you know, some of those people <laughs> I might not see, but I don't know, but Hey, if I, you know, if I deal with these people and that keeps me sober, I mean, I'll do it because dealing with people that are, uh, you know, it's some sometimes uh, you know, am gossiping or whatever, and, uh, you know, if I have a neg- negative experience, it's way better than the despair that I feel when I'm lying in bed all day hungover. So.
0: Garrett, I met with my sponsor one time. This is early on in the steps. I was like, man, some of these people, I cannot freaking stand them. And he goes, Paul, the worst part about AA is the members, <laughs> right? And he's <laughs> like, if you can get past that and focus on the similarities and not the differences, basically focus on the positives and not the negatives like you said – you're going to be just fine. And, you know, the religious component, yeah. that was a big one for me as well. It's a big one for a lot of people. AA is is viewed as a religious program in all 50 states. And it's a, it was a tough one. So I understand your trepidations there. And, yeah, you know, the people where there are a lot of sick people in the rooms, and including myself, when I first went and if I go tomorrow then as well. So I totally understand your trepidation with that stuff. And, and Garrett, let's shift gears a little bit here. With sixteen days of sobriety, what have you learned most about yourself?
1: You know, I think that what i've with, with, with this time around, just more of a sense of inner peace, i think this this whole thing is tied up for me with a lot of anxiety, a lot of self-doubt and a lot of you know shame and and what I'm realizing now is that i I don't have to uh, I don't have to keep living the way that I've been living. I don't have to keep doing the, this constant cycle that I've been doing. And I think that's, that's the biggest insight is I, there's, there's no reason I I never have to pick up a drink again and just how great that that's going to be and and has been for the past 16 days. So I I think that I've just learned that I, I, that life does not have to be like it's been. Yeah. I
0: did an interview this morning and we touched up on that exact sentence where she was just saying that, you know, life sucks and it doesn't have to suck. And she pretty much accepted that life has to suck. And then, you know, she, she realized that it doesn't have to suck. And you're 100% correct on that. It was 16 days of sobriety, you know, I'm at two and a half years and I've, I have cravings at times. I do. When they come for you, what do you do?
1: You know, in the podcast, one of the episodes talked about they only last 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. So I've been picking up my Apple Watch and just going, Siri, set a timer for twenty minutes.
0: Nice, you got <laughs> Siri like, on your side. That's freaking
1: awesome! Yeah, that's right. And I'm like, that's awesome. You know, that's a great. I, I need these pragmatic tools. You know, these cognitive tools. You know, whether it's you know mindfulness, certain things that I can do. You know, if I have these cravings, I need to do X, and that'll that'll uh, stem them. You know, and that's what's uh, what's been happening so far. It's been awesome.
0: And Garrett what's on your bucket list in sobriety? What do you want to accomplish?
1: I want to you know I, I mean, I got to keep it for today, but I just want to uh, I want to accomplish continuing to to be happy I, I can do anything that I want in in this life and you know today I'm choosing not to drink and because I know that that is the uh, the absolute best pathway towards my unhappiness
0: and walk us through a typical day in your recovery and us do day 17. What's your plan tomorrow? How are you going to stay sober?
1: Wake up early and just kind of, you know, take some time to, you know, again, incorporate the mindfulness, being in a moment, just in, you know, seeking out ways that I can, you know, continue to be at peace and just go about my day. And like I normally do, you know, I I'm, I'm in sales. I just, you know, I'm driving around just kind of enjoying that more and, you know, just seeking out new experiences, and also you know, being more open to talking to people, and uh, not isolating. Uh, getting outside more, you know, is a big thing with, with me. My the, the drinking was was always it was always an isolating thing. I, I wouldn't really go to bars. I would wait till the end of the night, and I would shut myself in and, and uh, veg out in front of the TV uh, by myself every time. And so, so less isolation a lot more going outside, a lot more exercise, just working on myself.
0: It sounds like accountability is going to be a big component for this. I know you signed up for the Cafe, our group, which is going to launch on June 1st, and you're doing a podcast episode, right? I mean, there's thousands of people are going to hear this, and you're getting accountable with yourself. This is a big component of what my recovery looks like. It's just two two dudes who don't mix well with alcohol or with poison, shall we say, just chatting on the phone. It's awesome.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. Yep.
0: Yeah, and Garrett, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? Absolutely. All right, Garrett, number one, what was your worst memory from drinking?
1: Waking up and having to tell my wife that I was too hungover to go down to my mom's house for Easter.
0: Yikes, when that was that, this
1: year? That was this year. And then spending the, the entire day just uh, being in just a state of despair.
0: Just broken. I don't miss that. And next question, we've all heard of the aha moment. When was your oh shit moment indicating that you couldn't control your drinking?
1: The oh shit moment was, there have been a, a few of them, but back in college when I just got too hungover and I missed a final. It's going to the very beginning. That was the, the first oh shit moment.
0: And what's your plan in sobriety moving forward, Garrett?
1: Like I said before, it's, it's accountability. It's reaching out and talking to other alcoholics and just, Uh, Seek ways to help each other.
0: And what's your favorite resource in recovery?
1: I would say that, you know, different podcasts. I mean, definitely uh, Recovery Elevator and, you know, just online stuff and and the Big Book as well, which I've got on my Kindle.
0: Perfect. And thank you very much for listening to the podcast, Garrett. I appreciate that. And next question. In regards to sobriety, Garrett, what's the best advice you've ever received?
1: You don't ever have to drink again if you don't want to.
0: I love it. I love it. And what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are thinking about getting sober?
1: If you're thinking about getting sober, I would say do it. You'll never feel better.
0: Agreed on that one. And before we depart, Garrett, give listeners your own customized you might be an alcoholic if.
1: Okay, you, you might be an alcoholic if every night after you down many, many bottles of beer that you put those bottles of beer in a trash bag, put them in your trunk. And then the next morning, drive them to a dumpster so that your wife doesn't find out that there's all these bottles of beer oh. in the trash can.
0: <laughs> You're good. That's a good one, <laughs> for sure. We are a secretive bunch. We really are. Yeah. It's quite amazing the measures sure. we go to hide our drinking. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, well, Garrett, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Much appreciated. All right. Thank you, Pool. Let's talk about cravings for a second. I did an interview earlier this morning where the guy says, you know what, I don't really have cravings anymore, but I do think about a drink and that really resonated with me. I actually don't have cravings anymore. That's an amazing feeling. I physically do not feel like I need alcohol in my system. I don't. The cravings dissipated and pretty much went away about month six in my recovery. My body, it doesn't need that shit. And have I told you lately guys that alcohol is shit. It's just shit. It's ethanol with a couple additives added to it to make it palatable. I don't need that shit in my life. That is the exact example of an iatrogenic agent. It solves a problem in the short term, but in the long term, it creates a hell of a lot more problems. But yeah, I do think about having a drink. Sometimes. Once a week, twice a week, maybe twice a day. For example, last night I was watching El Chapo. This is a Netflix original about El Chapo. Some drug trafficking lord down in Mexico. And his region was Tecate. And Go figure. Tecate is also a beer. It was a dang good beer from what I remember. And I thought for a second, man, I kind of want a Tecate. But then I did one of my favorite tools in recovery. I followed a drink. I thought, oh, yeah, Tecate would be pretty good right now. Wait a second. Let's pump the brakes. What's going to happen? First off, a Tecate. That is going to happen. But will I stop it? a tecate? That's not going to happen. I've lost that battle about 99 out of 100 times. And I think the one time that I won was when I got arrested for a DUI. I wasn't able to drink anymore. And after I have about 55 tecates in one sitting, nothing good is going to happen. It'll be followed by a lot of anxiety, more depression than I've ever experienced. Probably not going to make it to work. Suicidal ideations bring those on and a whole other garbage dumpster fire of shitty things that I definitely don't want. So that type of thinking, I know earlier in the podcast, I talked about my stinking thinking. That's actually logical, pragmatic thinking that puts me in my place pretty quick. So whether you're physically craving the drink or if you've been sober long enough that you physically don't crave the drink, but you think about having a drink. I highly encourage you to use this tool. Play the tape forward. Think about what will actually happen. You've got enough personal data in the hopper to think about it. Did the last time you wanted to have just one drink, is that how it went? Did you successfully put it down, close your tab after two to three drinks? Or did you shut that place down? Studies show that the average person sees over 50 alcohol references each day. Some of these are just in passing. Some of these are from powerful advertisers that do a very good job at doing their job to convince you to drink alcohol. So I'm going to do my job right here and give you another one-liner. Alcohol is shit. So 1 to 50, who are you going to believe? Myself, wearing sweatpants slash running shorts, just went for a run like I said earlier, or big alcohol? I'll leave that one up to you, but I hope you side with me recovery elevator i love you guys i really do in fact i think i owe my life to you guys i'm pretty sure i do so if i haven't said thank you before i need to say it right now thank you thank you thank you for listening this podcast has been downloaded over 1 million times that is humbling it's awesome it is so cool so you know how we close this thing out guys We took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this.